Hard work doesn't guarantee you results. It guarantees you honesty. This is the Yoakum Strength Podcast with me, your host, Austin Yoakum, and producer Marcus Sawson behind the scenes. This quote leads us into our guests today, Clayton Thompson and Mason Milkey. Co-founders of RS3 Sports, Clayton and Mason are fellow young strength coaches pushing the boundaries in the baseball world. On today's podcast, we covered all things spinal engine, how to hit the ball far, how to throw the ball fast, and some really great stuff for my slow pitch softball game that I'm looking forward to implementing. Why training a pitcher to be a pitcher is the worst thing that you can do for them. And how we need to look through the field through a skill acquisition lens first and a force product production lens second. This was an awesome podcast with two stone cold studs that I look forward to returning to in the future. At the end of the podcast, we had some technical difficulties with Clayton getting cut off before his final question. So bear with us on that. But I promise these two will be back on the podcast for years to come and you'll get to hear his story even more. Thank you guys for listening. Keep chopping wood. Before we hit the intro music, I wanted to introduce to you guys the Yoakum Strength Insider. The Yoakum Strength Insider is our online training platform that takes all of the ideas that we talk about on this podcast and implements them into a program that is available to you at the touch of your fingers. Our goal with the Yoakum Strength Insider is to create better movers, to level up your life and to move forward from where you are. We do this in a holistic fashion. Not only will you receive a program that has helped hundreds of people become better movers, you'll also receive access to our app that allows you to track everything, has video links for all exercises, and allows you to be in constant communication with the Yoakum Strength Coach. Along with this, you'll get our 30-page PDF nutrition and lifestyle guidelines. That includes everything from what to eat, how much of it to eat, why we're eating it, meditation habits, and other lifestyle habits that we implement with our clients to really level up their lives. If you're interested in trying out one of these programs, use podcast 25 in the discount section right before you pay for 25% off your first program. Marcus, you know what time it is. Hit that intro music. Boom. This is the Yoakum Strength Podcast. Take the leap down the rabbit hole with us as we interview elite level guests to unravel what high performance really is. Oh, guys, welcome to the podcast. I'm excited to have you guys here. Do you guys want to, uh, and we got, we got a double podcast. We've only done a couple of the double podcasts with two guests on, but do you guys want to take turns, uh, kind of describing your background in the sports performance world and how you guys connected, uh, separately, how you guys got into the world of sports performance and then uh, how you guys kind of melded your minds together to create what you guys have going right now. Yeah, absolutely. I can start this one off. So I'm Mason. I'm currently a senior at Whitman college, which is a division three school in Walla Walla, Washington. Uh, I play baseball. I'm a pitcher. I graduate in May and I'm playing my final season of baseball, probably economics major, psychology minor, but I really love uh, training guys. So probably going to do something in that realm. And then something about me, I love to hike. I love being in the mountains, having time by myself and just getting lost in the moment. But I'll get into my story and then how Clayton, me and Clayton met. Um, as a kid, you know, I played all the sports growing up, baseball, basketball, soccer, football, everything all the time. You know, every single day I was playing a different sport recess. It was all about playing sports and I just, I loved it. Um, I got to high school and I started lifting weights. You know, I was lucky enough to have a strength coach introduce me before my freshman year into lifting weights. 
and it was really cool. I remember getting in there and barely being able to bench press the bar, you know, and then just after a summer, I'm benching 135 and like always seeing that progress. I really learned to love the weight room. I always pursued trying to throw harder for baseball. That's kind of the, a big thing that colleges look for is how fast do you throw? You know, my sophomore year of high school, I went to a, a baseball camp and they had the radar gun and I threw 72 miles an hour, which is terrible if you know anything about baseball. And so I looked into every resource possible about how to throw harder, found all these different companies and found driveline baseball, who was in Seattle, right by where I lived. And so I went out there and I started training with them. They're one of the first places to start using weighted balls and really collect a lot of data. And they're, they're like the biggest name in the baseball industry. So it's cool that I started with them so early, you know, when they're in a small little warehouse, um, I noticed slow and steady progress by my senior year. You know, I'm throwing 83, 84, getting plenty of small college offers. Not saying I was good at baseball, but like, you know, I actually had some interest. And then I get to college in my freshman year, you know, I'm supposed to be a pretty good pitcher for us. And I was just awful. <laughs> I let the moment get way too big for me, put way too much pressure on myself. And, you know, every time I went in, just did not do very well. And I think a lot of strength coaches don't look into that, how much the mental aspect plays into the performance. I know Austin talks about it a lot. Um, so after that year, I went back to driveline and started training there that summer. But again, my only goal was to gain velo. I did. I gained a few miles an hour. Now I'm throwing like 86, but I had some pain in my elbow. And so I had a partial tear in my UCL, ulnar collateral ligament, which is in your elbow. It's kind of the common one that many baseball players hurt. I tried to rehab this without surgery and the pain just didn't go away. So I got Tommy John surgery in January going into my sophomore year. Um, that year was a really tough year for me. You know, there's a lot of frustration. I was kind of growing apart from my teammates because I was on the team, but I couldn't really play. And I got into a pretty bad headspace through all that. I decided to take a gap year after that. Um, you know, I was pretty frustrated in life. Um, I wasn't doing as well as I wanted in school and I was hurt. I needed to rehab because Tommy John takes 12 to 18 plus months to rehab from. And, you know, the physical therapy where I'm at was not very good. I'm, I'm doing curls with a two pound dumbbell, you know, at three months out of surgery. And then they want you to throw a baseball. So it's like I took a gap year and I rehabbed that driveline baseball. This was a year where I really grew a lot as a person. Um, you know, I trained, I worked 30 hours a week and I did school. And so I was busy all the time working on the weekends, taking taking a full load in classes and, you know, driving 40 minutes to train for four hours a day and driving 40 minutes back. Um, they approach rehab in a really cool way that's uncommon for the baseball world. So a standard rehab program for baseball, they'll give you a throwing plan that says like 40 throws at 60 feet and 40 throws at 90 feet. And it's just super arbitrary. There's no measurements of how to progress. Um, there's just tons of volume. And what they did is you threw different weighted balls based on where you're at in the rehab phase, but you use velocity as a metric to uh, measure intensity. So like, you start throwing at four months and you're supposed to be full speed by 12 months. So it's like, where was your, where was your velocity before surgery and how do we progress week by week to get there? You know, they're one of the first places to really challenge the surgeons rehab programs. And that's, that's going to become a big thing in baseball now. But anyways, through that rehab, I gained some more velocity and now I'm like 86, 87, but just never, my elbow never stopped hurting. I ended up having bone spurs, which I had to get removed. And then coming back from that, I tore my labrum, my shoulder. And I, again, I rehabbed that one on my own without getting surgery. 
Um, I did some rehab with Dak. We did super high reps, a lot of ISOs. And, you know, that helped a little bit, but it didn't get me where I needed to be. And what actually got me where I needed to be was training like a meathead. Super heavy shoulder exercises three times a week. Lots of super maximal eccentrics. And my shoulders, you know, it's not perfect, but it's good enough to play this year, which is awesome for me. I mean, it's my senior year. I haven't played in four years now, and I'm actually loving the game again like throwing the hitters and remembering why I love the sport so much. And then Clayton, you can go into how we met in your story. Yeah. So I, I'll do the amended version for me, but I pretty much my whole life, I played sports, basketball, whatever. And then my senior year, I was not very good at baseball at all, but I knew I wanted to play baseball still. So I walked on to Whitman college and I was throwing like 77 miles an hour. I definitely threw the slowest on the team by far. And then I, I was talking to our coach and I was like, yo, is there anywhere I can go like to driveline? Cause I'd heard about driveline before I lived in Seattle. And I was like, can I go to driveline this winter? And he was like, yeah. And then, so I, so I went to driveline for the first time for four weeks over the winter. And then I started throwing like 80 to 82 miles an hour, touching like 84. I was like, Oh my God. Yeah. Like, this is awesome. Like weighted balls are like the best thing ever. And so I, you know, that whole year, like I didn't play once, uh, and that reflected in my attitude on the team. And so I started throwing harder. And then, but I was asked not to come back to Whitman College and not play on their baseball team anymore. And I was throwing like 87, 89 now. And so I was like, all right, I'll go to Juco because, you know, like these guys don't want me. So, I mean, I, I was a bad teammate, like for sure. And, but I didn't go back to Whitman College. And so I went to Lamar Community College in Lamar, Colorado. Uh, for those of you who have been to Lamar, Colorado, you know what I'm about to say, but you don't need to go to Lamar, Colorado ever. About a thousand people live there. The college is absolutely atrocious. Uh, if you want to go do rodeo, go to Lamar, Colorado. That's literally the only reason why. Um, but other than that, uh, I went there. I had a great time. I met some of my best friends in the world, like Liam Doolin. He's one of our main athletes. He throws 99 now. That's pretty sick. Um, and then I, I, you know, messed around in JUCO, tried to grow up a little bit, uh, realized why I wasn't allowed back on my first college team. And then I went to Augie. So I go to, now I go to Augustana University. And uh, right now I'm just trying to figure out how to train and, like, be a better athlete. And that's kind of just where my training's been at lately. I've got a torn labor in my left shoulder as well. So Mason and I are twins. And we met my freshman year at uh, Whitman and We've just been talking about training ever since. And then last December, uh, I was training at Tread Athletics at the time. And I was actually in North Carolina. And uh, I was like, Mason, like we could we could do it like these guys. Like no question. Like I had known had Mason for about two years at that point. I was like, dude, like we could, we could do something without a doubt. Like we, there's nothing stopping us. And so we started, we started just training, training our guys. And we were pretty dumb at first. Uh, we still are pretty dumb in my opinion, but we're getting there. And that's all that matters because it's just, it's really cool. Like I look back, I'm like the first program I ever wrote for Liam Doolin is kind of just like basic stuff that I'd taken from everywhere else. And then now it's just like, like it's mine. Like that's the coolest thing ever. Like I'm not taking like from just Cal beats anymore. Like it's Clayton Thompson and Mason Milky coming together to make programs. Yeah. And one of the things that you mentioned, you were talking about how you do, uh, you, you haven't done a ton of, um, what is it? Ton of seminars, online seminars, online, uh, courses, but you, you try out other people's programs and you run through. And that, that's one of the biggest things that I do. Like, dude, I've done, 
I've done Joel Seedman's. I've done knees over to the, I've done every okay. single program just looking. Cause it's like, there's a reason people are attracted to it. Like what, what is drawing people? Even if it is the marketing aspect of it, like, all right, I'm going to try this and see what that marketing piece is, why it's working. Uh, but ideally you, you do better programs than that and you just try all the programs and you get to steal actual like knowledge from them. And you, you try the program like, okay, this works for me this doesn't like, I'm going to cut that crap out, you know? And that's why that's one of the best things is when you're running through your own program, it's kind of tough to see that bullshit, you know, like when you're creating the own program, cause you think it's all great. You think, Oh, okay, this is it. This is it. This is it. Like I wrote it down on a piece of paper. It's gotta be great. But when you try other people's program, you're like, this is it. This sucks. Like I'm going to cut this. So I think that's also part of it is like doing that with your athletes. Like you put the program in front of them and like, all right, what works for you? What do you enjoy? Uh, what don't you enjoy? Why don't you? Maybe we have the conversation. Maybe you don't enjoy it because you're soft and you don't like ISOs. Like I'm, we're not eliminating those because you don't like them. Uh, but maybe it is because it's bullshit and it's filler and we, we haven't looked at that in the right way. Um, but after that rant, Mason, I want to talk about uh, your, your kind of uh, economic background and your psychology minor that you talked about. Yeah, how have absolutely. you, how has this given you a kind of like outside the box of view at the field? Because that's something I really wish I would have done in college is kind of just approach it from a different field, like taking a totally different field and applying it. And I talked with uh, intern Lockin on the podcast and he's, he, we just had a phone conversation and he wants to go more philosophy and take those course. I'm like, dude, 100%, like you can learn everything about the human body. That's the beautiful thing about the human body is all of us have one. You can learn one by experimenting with your own and training other people and reading books. But that outside approach, like people get so indoctrinated in the NSCA, CSCS like approach when they take these courses, when they take, the, the, the typical exercise science approach, which I'm not saying you can throw all the foundational pieces out, but I'm interested in how that different perspective has helped you in the field. Yeah. So the biggest thing I've taken away from economics is return on investment. That's what all our training is about. It's what are we going to get the most bang for our buck for? And then kind of combining that with psychology, it's like the mental state of the athletes at the time. So what can they do that day? That's going to get them better. If we, if we train them for two hours a day, right, they're going to be mentally taxed and they're not going to be able to put their best effort into training. So it's being able to manage, uh, you know, the return, whether it's 30 minutes that day, whether they can give you an hour and a half and then what kind of exercise, like, can we lift really heavy? Can we do a five minute ISO or does it need to be games and stuff that's going to take their mind off their life and, you know, still get them benefit, but it's easier that day. And then psychology, a lot of it's about learning which is very interesting. I like getting into motor learning and I don't think I would have gone there without that kind of background, but thinking about how important learning is for skill development, um, you know, it's critical to what we do. So, well, and I think that motor learning part is something that's dude. It's like you, you go through the, these classes and it's all like, how do you increase force? How do you add more mass? And it's like, it's all important stuff. Like it isn't, you can't just skip that and like not have that approach. Uh, especially if you want to like throw gas, if you want to sprint fast, you want to do these metrics, but it's also like, you got to be able to learn the skill. I, I, I love the example. We have a, uh, we have an athlete on our football team that he can jump like 45 inches on a jump mat. It, it's Jesus. ridiculous. Like it's crazy. Like the dude can bounce out of the gym, windmill dunk, beautiful jumper, but can't catch a football. Doesn't know how to run a route. You know, like you got to have the motor learning of, all right, we got to teach you how to actually do your skill. And that's where I think the, the field needs. And I, th I think we are. Uh, I also think we surround ourselves with, you, you don't see a lot of the crap that is going out there. So maybe it's a biased approach, just who's surrounding you, but you got to be able to direct and be a skill facilitator for people to be able to like, especially in a sport like baseball, man, it's like, 
uh, I, I see these, uh, I see it in slow pitch all the time. This is why I love the sport of slow pitch. Cause there'll be a dude that is a BMI of 40 smoking a cigarette, just got done chugging two beers, but he knows how to swing a bat and hit a ball. You know, like he's going to out, he's going <laughs> to, I brought one of, and it's a great example. Cause I brought one of my athletes who can hex bar deadlift 700 pounds and can sprint like ridiculous numbers. And he sucks. Like, you know, like the, the skill piece, especially in your guys' sport is so important yet. We, we don't want to talk about it. We, it's it's all the sport coaches fault. It's, a, you know, like it's all out there rather than actually focusing and kind of honing in on how do we make them better at their sport? How do we teach them how to do their sport? How do we become learners and masters of learning motor, like motor units and stuff like that? I mean, in baseball, like the best, the best guy on my team right now, Jordan Barth, he's a USA racquetball champion. Like, like from the time he was 12 years old, racquetball world champion, still, still runs it back like every year. It's ridiculous. And so on the baseball field, more than anywhere else, it's not like if I had a team of guys like and nobody knew how to juggle, who could learn how to juggle the fastest? That's the honest to God. That's probably going to be the best athlete, like best, like best guy on your baseball team. Like who can figure out how to do the thing the quickest. And on our team right now, it's Jordan Barth, without a doubt. That guy just has unreal hand-eye coordination and he could pick something up in two seconds. He just makes it everything look too easy. Well, and that, that's, that's one of the pieces that I love talking about too, is it's, and I, I haven't figured out what it is. Is it once you start to pick up skills, do you become better at picking up skills? Or is it once you start to pick up skills, you become more obsessed with learning skills? Because that is the, I mean, this last year we were at St. Thomas and we had these division one athletes and that is the number one thing. It wasn't metrics. It wasn't any of this. It was the ability to be told something and they picked it up like this. It was like uh, a good example is like hinging. Like day one, we were, we were teaching this hinge and division three athletes, doesn't matter how strong they were. It doesn't matter the outputs, similar, whatever it was, frame size. It would take a couple sessions, maybe a week, maybe two weeks for most to pick it up. There was, I would say 99% of these division one freshmen that we brought in. We said, Hey, this is how you hinge. And they would all do it. And they'd be like, coach, just like that. I'm like, yes, exactly like that. You know, like <laughs> there's nothing more to fix there. You guys got this figured out. Your, your, your motor patterns are incredibly adapt at like picking things like that up. And again, it, it doesn't matter what the skill is. It's just becoming masters of learning skills, masters of picking stuff up like that. And I think challenging the athlete to pick up the skills rather than just continually give them things that they've mastered. Because I think that racquetball thing is a great example of a baseball guy. You like that hand eye. It's like, even if a baseball athlete's struggling with hitting a ball, I'm not saying you go play racquetball, but get the mind off and work on the hand eye in a different perspective, get them to pick up skills in a different way that are almost like a donor sport, you know, like doing these type of things to create masters of learning skills. Yeah. I mean, motor learning is super plastic in nature, right? Like what happens if you're exposed to a thousand different stimuli at once, like you're not going to potentially learn a skill. Like there's too much going on all at once, but your brain might learn what it's like to be exposed to so much stimulus. And the next time it happens, it might not freak out as bad. Or it might be able to pick up a skill a little bit faster because it was already overexposed and we run through all these different neural pathways already and it won't be happening for the first time anymore. And so I think it's about exposure and getting enough exposure. And a lot of people do the same stuff day in and day out. And that's why they don't see any gains. It's just like, dude, when's the last time you tried to run fast or didn't try to run in a straight line? Well, and, and then I, the I, next time you're going to do it is on the field. Like that just doesn't make any sense. And I love the, the the weighted ball approach too, um, just because it does give that different stimulus as well. You know, like it's that that's something that's 
it's less out there. It's less um, more play based where it's like totally different, but it gives just enough different stimulus to the body to where it has to learn how to throw with a different constraint. And I think it's something super simple that you can continue to like build on in these sports rather than throwing the same baseball over and over again. I mean, it goes back to like just throwing rocks as a kid, you know, like if you want to create a good thrower of objects, like get them to throw rocks when they're kids, you know, like continue to get them all right, this is a big rock. This is how I have to throw this rock. This is a small rock. This is how I have to throw this rock. This is what I'm able to do with this small rock. This is what I'm able to do with the big rock. And get them to learn their bodies that way rather than this is the baseball. Like, because I see it, it's like these 11 year old kids have throw the same thing over and over and over again for 40 years. Of course, they like stagnate, you know, like they're throwing the same thing that their body's never adapting, never learning anything new. It's the same baseball throwing in the same way. And they hit that ceiling. I've learned this in um, trying to master master in quotations. I've, I suck at it compared to most people, but gymnastic type movements. One thing I've noticed is trying to learn something like a, uh, let's say an aerial or a front flip. I'll try it, try it for three weeks. And if I'm hitting a point where I'm not getting any better, I'll take three weeks to like uh, maybe a month and a half off, work on a different aspect. Maybe it's a back bend, maybe it's a walkover, that type of stuff. And I'll go back to that movement that I tried to learn. And it's always, always the first time I try, it was much better than the time before. And it's so crazy that we are not trying to approach the field of sport in that way. We're just giving them the same baseball for their entire life and not changing any constraints on them. I mean, you just hit my biggest beef with the baseball community on the head, which is, I mean, I'm not trying to get into our, what the worst thing you can do for a pitcher is to make them a pitcher, but it's the fact that athletes are told to do the same throwing drills for years at a time. Years. You know how many years people have been doing pivot picks for? <laughs> you don't need to do pivot picks anymore. If a drill works and makes you more efficient, stop doing it. The drill's done. You become more efficient. Progress. It's o- yeah. like, it's over. Don't do pivot picks anymore. <laughs> No, you got to emphasize that. Like once you get up the drill, you don't need that drill anymore. Like you got to move on to something else that helps you make new changes and learn different skills. Um, You know, something we do a lot is we'll make pitchers throw like a quarterback and we add a lot of different stimulus to see what kind of produces the best results, but we have different ball weights, different materials, different ball sizes. We'll use like audible cues, telling someone when to throw, maybe they'll have their eyes closed. And so then it's like super reactive, you know, change different targets. Um, But you have to add so many different stimulus to really make an athletic thrower. Well, and And that falls on us as a coach too, because the reason we want those drills over and over again is because it starts to look pretty. And then it starts to be like, okay, we feel good about ourselves. Like we got our athlete to master that drill. And at the end of the day, it's like, who cares? Like Nobody cares about you mastering that, that drill. I, I love that you mentioned the QBs throwing or uh, baseball players throwing like QBs. Cause we, we did it the opposite. I had our QBs throw like baseball guys and trying to, and we threw baseballs with them, trying to have them hit people on the run. And we did a bunch of different implements, but baseball was a good example of one, uh, having them do a bunch of sidearm stuff, having them just approach it in a different way. Uh, and I love that Bobby Stroop is kind of on the up and up with, um, uh, Patrick, oh, I fucking forget Patrick Mahomes' name. Patrick Mahomes, because now it's like becoming mainstream and cool, and it, 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 like it, it, it is the, the it's, it's the approach you should take. Like you watch all this, but the frustrating thing is everybody wants a QB like Patrick Mahomes, but they don't want to train like that. They, like if a, if he throws like that in practice, he's going to get bitched at. They're, they're, I've, I've seen it over and over in high school or college settings. It's if he's not throwing in perfect, he doesn't have the perfect release angle. If he's not staying in that pocket, doing the perfect thing to the perfect spot, he's going to get yelled at. So, of course, that destroys creativity. I can only imagine it's worse in baseball where there's less moving objects and you can, as a coach, have more control that like we're, we're beating the creativity. We're beating the athlete out of these athletes. Yeah. And then also I saw a tweet the other day, like 
get your pitchers to be athletic and go hit them ground balls at shortstop instead of doing PFPs. And I went, that's the only time you want your pitchers to be athletic. <laughs> the one time when you're fielding ground balls, why don't you want them to be athletes all the time? Like I'm training athletes. Like I don't want them to be pitchers. Like I think of myself, honest to God, as a, as a track coach who happens to be in baseball, like that's like track does it perfect. I still think that feed the cats method, super great. Lift heavy, feed the cats, then you're done. But moreover, it's just like, I want my guys to be athletic at all times. Like when you're on the mound and something happens, like you don't get, like your mechanics are never going to be the same twice. I want you to be able to adapt in 0.001 seconds and still be able to throw that thing 94 miles an hour right down the middle. Even if there's some rock under your shoe, like your leg lift isn't perfect. Like you don't stop being an athlete just because you're throwing the ball. Like I want you to be athletic at all times. And I, I love that you're never, you're never going to throw it. I mean, it's differential learning approach, uh, but you're never going to throw the baseball uh, the same way over and over again. And that's something that like it needs, it, once an athlete accepts that and understands it, it is so freeing and powerful for them, powerful for them to be able to go on the mound and relax and be like, okay, I'm just going to throw the baseball, you know, like I'm not trying to hit certain positions. Uh, we really struggled with this. The biggest struggle in my athletic career was throwing. I was a hammer thrower because I went from a sport of football where it was like, you got to figure out the problem in front of you. And there are lots of things wrong with football in the training, but it's like, at the end of the day, you're basically shutting it all off and you got to beat the guy in front of you. It doesn't matter what the coach tells you, because if you're not beating the guy in front of you, you're going to get benched. So you're going to figure out a way to beat him. Like, I'm going to go this way. I'm going to try this way. I'm going to do this. Like, it doesn't matter. It's going to be different variations. And I went to a sport like track and field where throwing it's, you got to step here on this part at this time in here. And I've never been more mentally destroyed in my life going in that circle, trying to focus on all of these pieces where it's like, I just like, at some point you just got to go, like, you just got to go. You just got to think about it. And something that's been super freeing recently, just, I mean, in my athletic career, I'm playing slow pitch softball trying to get good at it, like <laughs> athletic career, but freeing at the mound is like knowing that it's like, dude, it doesn't matter. Like it, I'm not going to swing the same way every single time. Anyways, like just get super comfortable and adaptable to be able to hit the ball, to do your job, you know, whereas it, the other way, it's like, you got to think about so many things at the mound and you got to be like, okay, I, I got to be perfect here. I got to do this. Otherwise it's not, it's like, no, just throw 94. Like you said, like, just do what your body's capable of doing and stop fighting it. Yeah. I finally got there this year. You know, I was always the guy who thought way too much, you know, how to take a video every single rep and see what positions <laughs> I'm hitting. And you know, that my, now that my labrum is pretty busted, it's like, well, I don't give a shit as long as it's not hurting. And like, I'm going to throw from different arm slots and I'm just better than you. Like, I don't care if I throw slower now, like I'm just going to beat you. And that was really freeing. You know, I'm so much better than I was, even though like my physical stuff is not nearly as good. Yeah. I love, I love that you said the video thing too. Cause that, I mean, that was me and throwing too. I was like trying to hit the angle. I, was, I would do this is where it's like, I would slow-mo the video and throwing. I'm like trying to see if I hit It's like, dude, did, did it go far? Did it matter? You know, like if I, if I hit the perfect position and threw not far, I'd be happy because it, it's what the coach wanted. And I it could add video evidence to do it. I, I did want to touch on that, Mason. You mentioned at the start of the podcast, how the first time, like you increased your exit velocity and yet you stepped on the mound. You're like, holy fuck, dude, like none of that matters. Like it's all out the window about that, like psychological piece. I want to throw that question out to you too. Cause that's something that it's less talked about than the motor learning and the motor learning isn't talked about at all in our field. We again, just get stronger, throw faster, run faster. And it's like, none of that matters. If you're not thinking about the mental side of it, if you're not putting them in situations, stressful situations, like throwing against a radar gun or throwing against a battery, you know, like being able to go up on the mound and be mentally all right, mentally in a good spot. 
how, how have you approached that to like make that switch and how do you approach with your athletes? How do you implement some of the things to be like, get them all right with that? Right. So for me, it was, uh, I mean, it was a hard transition, but it came easily because I had two surgeries and now another injury. So I got to the point where it's like, I may or may not ever play again. I have nothing to lose. Like I love being out there and I'm just going to try to enjoy it as much as possible. But then with athletes, um, the first thing we've been doing a lot of, we play tons of games, just like you, um, this summer we were doing a lot of like tag sharks and minnows, handball, um, different juggling stuff, whatever we could do and learning how to win, learning who's better at what, um, learning how to deal with failure, you know, for guys who weren't as good, we make different constraints to make it more challenging for the better guys. So they lose sometimes. And then physically we do a lot of races. We compete when we're lifting weights. And then in my training, it was ISOs, ISOs and high reps made a huge difference being able to hit, you know, six minute lunge, like after two minutes, you're already burning. And it's how far can you push your body? Like realizing the worst thing that happens is you fall, like nothing else happens. You just fall. And so ISOs and high reps and really just learning how to push yourself to that next level, knowing that like, there's no repercussion if you mess up. And then it should be the same thing with sport. Like you're doing what you love. And the worst thing that happens is you fail, but so what? Like you're doing what you love. Yeah. That ability to detach, I think is super important and it's not something most athletes are one talk to about or very good at the greats are good at it, but it's like, that, that's definitely something you can train. It's definitely something you can work on with your athletes, but we, we never talk about that detachment piece. It's like, because they, they get in the moment. It's like, I'm an athlete. This is all I am. This moment's here. I got to do it. And then it's like, you're so stuck in that repeated thought process that you can't detach and be like, okay, if I, if I give, let's, I give up a home run here. What happens? You know, like I, I go home, like, uh, all right. Like, you know, like, and then when you get into that thought process, you, you stop giving up home runs, you know, like you, you're so much less stressed, but it, it, it's that mindset of it's, it's, I don't, I don't even want to say it's confidence. It's just the ability to be all right with that failure. And I think, like you said, like exposing that failure to them in training and then having that conversation with them in training of, all right, you just lost. What was your emotional response? Cause super competitive guys in these small sided games that will play like they'll, they'll rage, they'll have an emotional outfit. It's like, all right, talk to them. It's like, dude, you just lost the game of tag and that's your reaction. Like, like what's that look like in your sport? What's that look like in the biggest moments? Like how, how are you able to mentally respond from that and getting them to one, just have these conversations and then to educate them a little bit on what can you do when you start to feel that. But I like the ISO part too, because ISOs is where you can feel it. Like you, you are with yourself, you're in your own brain, start to feel these things, start to feel where your mind, cause your mind, like there's so many different waves and voices when you're in the ISOs start to feel what, like when you start to lose it, like uh, your mind will start to go on the pathway. Like, okay, you can just quit here. And then it'll start to go with the anger. It's like, okay, why, why is that anger there? Okay. Now it's going to start to go with the pain. What, what, what's that pain, but getting the athletes to know themselves. Cause that's something that most athletes are not good at. Cause we, ne we never tell them to know themselves. We never train it. We never talk about it. And they just have no idea who they are, where that, why their brain goes the way that they go and just start to, understand the eight brain that is within us and the the multiple like not different personalities but the multiple ways that it can go and that you have some say in that and you just have to be aware of what's happening there i mean what you're talking about right now is the divide between sympathetic and parasympathetic the conscious versus the unconscious and so i mean when you're doing an iso and you're able to control what's going on and you remain in that parasympathetic state and your breathing is even like yeah uh, consciously i know exactly where this is going i know i can Hit this for three minutes right now like three minute lunch like you know you're three minutes in your breathing's still under control you can hold on but then your breathing gets out of whack and then eight brain starts taking over and then it's just like survive 
And when you're on the mound, so the most elite pitchers, they keep their heart rate under like 110 beats per minute. And like when I'm on the mound personally, like my heart rate, like I wore a whoop one time when I was on the mound and I was just like racking up at 160, <laughs> 170. And I'm just like this rage machine. And I'm like, holy, holy smokes. Like this isn't good. Like I, I'm letting my sympathetic state just come in and ruin everything. Like I'm not even keel. And so it's the same thing doing your ISOs, like an attempt to keep your heart rate down when you're four or five minutes in, like that's a big deal. And so this divide between parasympathetic also is breathing. And so four in, eight out uh, with one, one second pause in between each of those, like that would go a long way. And with the, uh, so we've kind of talked about, you, you mentioned the feeded cats approach. We've, we mentioned the weighted balls approach, but then we've also gone into the, the mindset approach and the ISO approach and the game approach. And that's where it, it, we talk about the yin and yang type approach to training. Like there's this two kind of like the foundational piece that everybody talks about. And then the, the, the woo woo piece that's out there. And like what we just talked about that some coaches, strength coaches will shut their minds out. Like, no, fuck like that's way too out there for me. How do you guys combine that into your training to where you're not too fringe, uh, but you're not too like in the box that you're not getting any results. You're just doing what other people have told you to do throughout your like years. How are you guys combining that? And what does kind of a training session look like for you guys? Yeah. So the thing that separates us from other people, I think, is the fact that we have beliefs set up already. So we believe in a couple things. We believe in training at high velocity. We believe in movement and we believe in building the armor. All right. So to do to do shit like bench 315, like you got to be kind of jacked, like you, you're not small and benching 315. So you're going to build the armor to throw hard. The, my posterior shoulder needs to needs to be strong. So we believe in building the armor that way, like putting on a couple of pounds for a lot of guys, really good thing to do. And we believe in movement. So we believe in uh, moving it like Dr. Tommy John says, moving a joint like 10,000 times a day. But honestly, moving 10,000 times, moving your knee 10,000 times in a row kind of sucks. Like that's pretty boring. And so I'm going to I'm going to invent a game or a constraint where that where, where we're done by the time that game is over. We will have ran or crawled or done something like that a lot of times and hopefully started to achieve that movement goal by the time we're done. And then high velocity, we run flying tens twice a week uh, on Tuesdays and Fridays after a, a 10 yard Excel days the day before, like some sort of agility work, like you guys do with mirror drills or stuff like that. Or uh, we'll do some sort of like curved running. Like Joel Smith talks a lot about like curved running is really good for rotational sport athletes. And so we do that a whole bunch. And then uh, we just try to combine all these qualities into a lift. And so the lift is uh, kind of hard at times because we're trying to like move fast, but move fast with weight. And so we're, we've taken some from like Chris Corfist. He has a lot of good like track drills and that's honestly him and Cal Dietz have played a really huge part on like where we've gotten our stuff from, because we're a big track football consortium guys, honestly, like we buy a lot of their lectures. And so Dan Victor as well, all those guys have come to like, uh, influence our lifts one way or another. And are you yeah. guys do, oh, go ahead, Mason. I'm going to add a few things. Yeah. So the baseball world as a whole, like they do a very bad job of training the nervous system. Um, classic training is either one, they don't sprint. And it's just like, let's hammer the foundational movements. Like let's squat and hinge and push and pull. And that's all you need to do. Or they sprint and don't recover. So it's like sprint, sprint a hundred yards and then walk 10 yards and then sprint again. So it's like, let's just train, uh, you know, the lactic threshold. And then the third one, which we actually experienced at some of like the quote top baseball places is say you'll do a lower body lift, upper body lift, and then you'll have a separate sprint day, but like you're never fresh for the sprint day because you're not combining it with the lower body day. And so, I mean, 
if sprinting is our single most important exercise, it is the fastest thing we can do as humans, probably the most coordinated movement and just the best stimulus. It's like this summer we sprinted, you know, two, three times a week and barely lifted heavy yet. Three months later, everyone's lifting heavier than they ever had just because it's such a strong stimulus. So we need to prioritize that movement. And then going into the games, it's like, there's a big thing. Lateral jump distance is correlated with throwing velocity. So everyone, let's do a banded lateral jump and work strength speed or whatever you want to call it. It's like, let's play a game and have a guy cut. And the eccentric load of the cut is so much more than that lateral jump. And the stretch shortening cycle has to work so much faster. So it's like, we can play games and train all these same qualities that everyone wants to use plyometrics for, but just train them in such a, like a more beneficial, but and a more engaging way. Yeah. And that's that, my gears. Is, oh, sorry. Oh, Austin. go ahead. Go ahead. What grinds my gears is that all the categories that people correlate stuff to are made up anyways. Like we made these up. They don't matter. Like I care what it goes on in the field. I don't really care about like strength. Like we made up what strength means. We made up what explosiveness is like go out and throw 94. You mean bilateral push, bilateral pull, you know, yeah. <laughs> it's like, geez, man, it's, just, it's a strength speed, you know, yeah. Trying to hit all the categories and it's like, people get stuck. They create so many boxes. They get stuck in it and they just sit and it's like, take, that's why I like, like love talking about that outside perspective. If aliens were to look at what we did most of the time, they're like, what the fuck are you guys doing? You're doing that to prepare for that. You know, like it doesn't make any sense. It, it, it blows my mind. Some of the, some of the times, but if you, but then I look back at my old training and like when I was in that box, I'm like, Oh my God, like that was me. It's and then if, as long as you, if you don't break out of the box, you're just consistently told you're right by people in the box with you. And it, it never stops. Like you just consistently think you're right. And that you just got to find a way to break out. One of the things I wanted to talk about, uh, well, first off, Mason, I love the, the sprinting part that you mentioned, because that that's another thing that pisses, not pissing me off in the field, but drives me nuts. It's like, if you want to get fast, you got to sprint. And that's like a Holy grail. And, um, like revolutionary idea in our field, like within the past five years, like no shit, like no shit that you, if you want to get fast, you should sprint. It's like you said, one of the most coordinated fastest movements that we can do as a human. And it's going to bring everything else with it. And again, you still have to have the skill piece, but it's just frustrating that that is rewarded so much that thought process. It's like, yeah, no, no duh. Like again, if aliens were to look at that, they'd look like they'd laugh in our face that we are thinking like we are geniuses for coming up with that. Uh, but the disseparant, um, I do want to talk about, do you guys do any uh, typical like rotational power, anything from like the Bobby Stroop world where you guys are broken, working on any of that T-spine rotation, any of the daddy hacks with the PVC pipes? Have you guys found any success with that? Are you measuring any med balls, like anything in the rotational world or is it all just these baseball athletes are at such a low level as humans that they just need to level up as humans? Uh, so, this one you've been hitting, so go for yeah. it. Yeah. Uh, basically, I so I did a mocap a couple months back out at Sanford out here. In a what? I did a motion capture. Okay. So it's like you get all decked out and like the little dots and you're yep. pretty much naked and then you throw. Uh, it's, it's a great experience, honestly. But uh, I, I got my mocap back and I threw uh, like I rotated way slower than the average. Um, and so what I've been doing is just every time I throw now, I just try to rotate fast as hell. And uh, it's been working. So I started off with like a nice little 89 exit mile an hour velocity on the tee. And I've gotten up to 97 lately in like two months. And it's literally from doing a PVC, uh, just a PVC swing as hard as I can. Just not, not as hard, but as fast as I can, just back and forth, waving it all over the place for like five seconds. And then after that, I go. So we have this like punching bag kind of thing in our facility. And I take one step behind and then I swing hard as hell into that. And then I go hit off the tee. And then I just hit into a radar gun. 
and I get constant feedback. It's, it's incredible. My, I'm, I've, I have a terrible swing, but somehow I'm hitting 97. It's ridiculous. Dude, I, I, I'm on hundred. I haven't done the waves with the PVC pipes, but uh, I've been doing the same like daddy hacks. I do daddy hacks with this PVC pipe, and then I take a weighted bat. I we have a bunch of different weighted bats, and I'll take them daddy hack into the um, into the boxing bag. And yeah, dude, in the last week, not in the in the last two months or so of consistently doing it, and we're still sprinting and doing everything like that. But the exit below, and this is with softballs, uh, soft toss softballs, so the bats are a little bit more juiced. Um, it went from 97 to a 106 in two months of hitting. Like I was like, dude, it's crazy, and how much better it feels. And I, I think it's probably has a bigger impact on somebody that like me, where it's, I'm not a rotational person. I haven't rotated throughout my life. So that PVC by getting that feedback, like, oh, that's like what the spinal engine feels like rotating all the way through, rather than just trying to like muscle it like a typical meathead. Of that, like, I, I think that PVC pipe is one of my favorite. If I'm gonna pick like a favorite exercise right now. I don't think there's anything more fluid and more like, I don't know, man. It's just, it's just something to that exercise that I've been implementing with almost all of my athletes is that PVC by yeah. just snapping it through. You should try. So you should try deacceleration and acceleration on the other end of that for a couple of reasons. The first one being that like the ability to decelerate super important in like rotational velocity. And then it's super elastic. How quick, how quickly you can stop, basically make a cut on one side and then come back to the other. It's super beneficial because also you're going to learn that in order to rotate, your feet are going to have to be pretty much flat on the ground and spread out. And so you're going to deviate back to the center really easy. And you're going to be able to feel your pelvis initiate motion, decel, and then turn back the other way. And it's going to actually create more like hip shoulder separation that way. It's pretty ridiculous. Boom. I'm going to have to try that for sure. I love that's I'm happy. I asked that question now. Um, do you guys do anything with med ball training, anything in that regard? I know a lot of strength, like it's big in the, uh, big in the baseball world. Do you guys implement those at all? Or is it more just yeah, trying to stay in the fast end? I can take this one. So Bill Miller, uh, he has some great research. He wrote a book called throw fast and he's got one called swing fast and he has super good correlations with improvement in medicine ball velocities and then bat speed or throwing velocity. So not the raw numbers, but actually where the person started and then the improvement correlates very well with their throwing or swing velocity. But that being said, like, you don't just want to train medicine balls and get better than but better at throwing them. Like that's not going to make you a better athlete. We want to try to improve these metrics without necessarily training them all the time. So something I like doing is yeah, I'll throw a two pound medicine ball, but I'm also going to grab a 30 pound kettlebell and try to rotate that. And I'm also going to do, you know, a maximal overcoming rotational isometric or a super heavy eccentric cable chop. I'm going to try to work really heavy rotation because in baseball, like the bat's roughly two pounds, a ball is five ounces. So we're getting tons of that, you know, super high velocity end of the movement. And I think adding a lot of force and max strength to it can help. But then, yeah, we're going to take the two pound medicine ball and track it and throw that thing as hard as we can a couple times a week. I love that you, that you mentioned like improve the metric without like making the metric a test. Cause I think that's something that we emphasize. And I think it's one of the best things that we do. And again, it goes into that differential learning approach, but you don't want to just sit there and like it goes back to our baseball talk. We're just improving your eggs or your velo by pitching a baseball, but like that should just naturally, like it should just rise with the wave of your human athletic potential rising, you know, like all of these things should come up rather than point, like making a triangle. Like this is where you're, you're, you're pointing to, and it's just, you're only good at this because you only work at this where you can bring everything up at the same time. And that's some, something cool that I love doing is like improving a flying 10 without running flying tens in a while. Or, uh, if we're just doing like a medicine ball run and we'll come back to it, same with gymnastics, like learning a skill after not doing that skill for a while, just bringing things up and like passing the test without ever practicing for the test, if that makes sense. 
yeah, that's why I, like I hate using the word holistic, right? Like holistic development. Like I don't know what that means still, but it's like training so much or just so like so wide of a, a variety of things that it's just like, okay, I like I I just started benching straight bar benching for the first time in like a two years probably, and then I'm able to hit my PR like two like a weekend for no reason. Like I haven't done it, and I hit my PR, and I'm just like, all right, add ten more pounds on the bar, and then it's just it goes easy. It's it's more than just the little triangle at the top, the sports specific part. It's well, not it's a, it's the same way. I mean, it's, it's the same reason like conjugate has been so successful in the meathead world. You know, like it's the same approach. It's just not not being a meathead running your face into a wall repeatedly, grind mental toughness through it. It's like there's so there's so many better ways and just let the body learn naturally rather than all right, we're gonna beat you down and master this. I had a question the other day. I was talking about like if your main goal is strength, like why should we focus on any of these other aspects, movement aspects? And I was like, well, one, first off, your main goal is probably not strength. I don't know very many people other than specific power lifters where their entire goal is strength. It's like, it's always to get better at a sport. It's always to move better. It's always just to live better. You know, like there's so many more things, but two, if your main goal is strength, if you are a power lifter and we, we have a guy that we, we train a national like ranked power lifter. And he said one, he quotes it all the time. One of the best things he's ever done is consistently add movement into his training because it, it helps him stay fresh. It helps him stay loose and it learn like keeps him engaged in his training. We'll crawl with him or roll with him. Uh, we'll, we'll do some gymnastics with him. He's not very great at it, but we'll do some gymnastics with him. And then that dude will go pull 800 pounds, you know, like if he can do it, if he's saying the same thing, but if you, if you don't do it, he's, and he said, that's the reason it came to us too, is he was doing this before and he would just deadlift three times a week, squat three times a week, you know, bench press, do run a typical powerlifting program and his body would just die. You know, like his body's just saying F you like, like let us do what we're supposed to do rather than beating us into this thing. And again, you can holistically in quotations, holistically bring all of these things up at the same time while keeping your specific goal, the specific goal. You don't toss that out and just turn him into a gymnast and expect him to deadlift 700 pounds. But th th there's a, such a better way to do it than what most of our meathead field is doing. I mean, oh, this is our, one of our harder takes, so stand with us for a second. But pretty much our, our current opinion is that coordination is king. Like if you can like coordinate yourself better and you're, this, you're the same strength, so you don't gain any strength at all, and you can coordinate, move better, you're able to coordinate yourself underneath a barbell better. Just if you're a power lifter, right? If you're able to coordinate yourself underneath a barbell better, you're going to lift more. Like you have better joint movement. You're wasting limited ROM. Like you're not going excessively deep in your squat anymore because you can control that range. It's the same reason why elite sprinters don't use the same ranges of motion as non-elite sprinters. They're not using as much ROM because they're more efficient and more coordinated. They might even be creating less velocity like in their limbs. They don't have to make up for the errors that they're putting elsewhere. And, and yeah. to, to branch off on that, we did a study in uh... – I was a senior in college. And I was implement. I was, they, they basically just picked like the 15 biggest meatheads in our school uh, and had us do this. And there was five power lifters in this study that deadlifted and squatted probably a hundred pounds more than me in everything that we did. Uh, and we did this force play study where we were pulling at different lengths or different angles of this. Uh, it was this little pulley and handlebar. Uh, I think G strength makes one now too, but it was a Jimmy rig G strength pretty much. And I beat, all of them at this and they would deadlift and squat a hundred pounds more than me because they, they, they practiced at it better. You know, like they're better. I was producing more force in all of these, all of these angles that we were, that you would connect with a deadlift similar as a deadlift. I was producing more force, but they were better at deadlifting than me. If we went onto the football field, I was better at football than them, but they were better at deadlifting than me. So they didn't need to, they were more efficient. They didn't need to produce as much force as me to deadlift way more than me. 
Yeah. I mean, that's how it goes like underneath different constraints, like a barbell is a constraint. That's like, but on the field, like you're going to be King, like you're, you're, you're more coordinated, you're more skilled. And it's all about skill and coordination and movements. That's why athletic movement is so beautiful. And that's why we play games. Like if I become more coordinated and, and able to connect complex subsystems of movement in my brain that I couldn't previously, because in games, like, you know, you get more athletic as the game goes on. Like you, you start doing things that you weren't at the beginning of the game because you're more comfortable and you're like doing and you're warming up and you're getting more intense and you're getting more competitive and a little bit in that sympathetic state and you're able to go for it. And so you're able to learn and you it's beautiful. And then the brain makes connection and underneath the barbell, it's like, Oh wait, I just like, wait, wait, that, these are, the, these are the same. And then it's just like, ah, oh, bet. And that's the beauty. And that's the thing about ISOs. No one realizes everybody trains the end position. Nobody trains the beginning position and you got to connect the beginning and the end. And so in athletic movement, if you somehow learn, like you get into a position in a game that you create, that is the beginning or end position. Like that might be an unlock. You, the body might never have done that before. Mason, you got anything to add there? Well, yeah, I was just thinking about coordination and, you know, we kind of had this revelation. We were doing max testing at school and our strength coach just throws in a push press, which is like a movement I hadn't done since high school. Most of the guys have never done. And, you know, I'm, I'm a strong guy. Like I deadlift three times my body weight, like squat mid fours, but we got, you know, a really fast guy who runs like a six, four 60, which might be like a four five forty, And he can barely lift any weight. but guess what? He's push pressing more than me. And I'm thinking like, what the heck's going on? We got, you know, other guys who are just better movers, like push pressing way more than me. And it's like, Oh, maybe cause they're coordinated and good athletes. And they're not like, they didn't have to do that lift before to coordinate the movement. So that is a funny, that's a funny lift. Uh, that's weird. Uh, I, we just did this the other day in my gym, that, that, that power lifter I talked about, uh, I push press more than him. And he lifts more than like, I think he's, I think his max bench press, if I'm getting his rise 475 and oh. at my peak, I've never, I benched 350 at my peak right now, at like 315, 330. And he now benches 475 and I push press weight, like more than him. Like, that's funny that you brought the, like the same exact lift. And I literally was like, Logan, like, what the fuck are you like? What is happening here? And he's like, dude, it's just like, I can't get it connected. And it's like, oh my God, like that's a straight up example of the coordination piece. Like, he just can't get that like connection piece. And that, that's another thing with the powerlifters is giving him more of that coordination piece. And he, he's the guy that we talked about, like adding in some of these things is super beneficial. And you talk about the law of diminishing returns in uh, economics too. It's like, he's so bad at it. You don't have to have him focus on it a ton. You just give him some coordination and he's so bad at it. That is so much easier to raise his level. than he is so good at powerlifting and lifting the barbell for him to get better at this by focusing on this. We'd have to spend so much time, effort, and resources, and that is part of your training. Whereas you could just spend 10 minutes a day on this little coordination piece and it's going to raise everything with it. Yeah, I think that, and, oh, sorry, Mason. Yeah, let me go. I think that connects a lot of the dots with, you know, all the neurology stuff that everyone talks about, whether it's vestibular drills or eye movements or, you know, doing coordinated movements stimulates all these systems. So guess what? It's going to make you stronger. Like it's going to make you move better. And I think, you know, that's a really nice way to look at it is we don't have to do this eye tracking movement or like specific crawling pattern with head movements. Maybe we can just do cartwheels, do flips, uh, something that stimulates everything at once. Like it's going to be more engaging and you're going to get all the benefits.
Yeah. And it's finding things people suck at and making them better. You know, like it goes back to that drill. It's like, stop giving them things they're good at, give them things they suck at. And that's one of the, like my athletes hate me for it. Cause it's like everything, like every time we master something, like we got to go into something we suck at. It's like, yeah, that, that's the entire point. Like right, give it to them until they suck less at it and then find something that they suck at and continue to raise those waves. But, uh, trying to get into the rapid fire rounds here and uh let's have mason go first on all of them and then we'll have clayton go yeah. second on them and we'll start with uh the favorite books uh and i'm interested in they can be training they can be outside of training whatever you guys want to talk about but let's go favorite books for you guys that you think the listeners can get a lot out of all right perfect i got a couple uh speed strength by joel smith awesome book really challenged my thoughts on training you know he's he's very minimal in his training but like he gets the maximum out of it and it really challenges a uh, conventional opinion be like water it's by shannon lee bruce lee's daughter just a great book and then probably you are the placebo again another awesome book i know clayton's read that and you know it's pretty it's pretty deep and it's gonna make you think so and Clayton? Uh, I, my two favorites are The Brain That Changes Itself. Uh, it's by Norman Doich. I'm, I'm definitely slaughtering that last name. But it was the first book that I ever read on neuroplasticity. And it talks about this guy who's just down on his life and in the psychiatrist's office, and it's, it's life-changing. And then my second favorite book is definitely Breaking the Habit of Being Yourself by Dr. Joe. Yep. Uh, just reading about his journey, it's just it's unreal. It, it was a life-changing experience. Yeah. His, uh, dude, if you want to talk about woo woo like that, that's probably as deep as you'll get into the woo woo world. But man, that stuff is, that stuff's wild when you get into it. That's, uh, I read that book this past summer and started doing some of the meditations that he preaches, uh, and he has on his website. It's, it's wild. Some of the states that you can get in, you're like, Oh my, like this, this is a part of the, the human mind that most people are not even thinking about or tapping into. No. It's, it's unreal. And I, I honestly don't know how to apply it, but I'm really trying. So <laughs> I'm the same, dude. I'm, I, I just yeah. started getting in and like getting into that world and seeing how can we apply these things? How can we do it? But it, it's pretty cool. I like that. You guys have a lot of, uh, uh, psychology, you know, like it, it, that's where these books are coming from. It's, it's master the mind, learn how the mind works, learn how skill acquisition works. And you can, you can create amazing athletes rather than focusing on what sets and reps we should, we should do. It's like, all right, dude, like that's such a small piece, focus on the bigger piece first. Uh, and then final question of the podcast before I get you guys out of here, uh, when all of this baseball stuff is over, when all of the, uh, training is over, when all the coaching is over, what do you kind of want your legacy to be? Yeah. Some, something I try to live by is people don't care how much, you know, until they know how much you care, you know, relationships are the first and most important thing you can do when training an athlete, when being a teammate, when meeting someone new. And I've had a lot of great coaches, but some of them, you know, they didn't build that relationship and didn't seem like they cared. So I didn't care like how knowledgeable they were. I didn't, they didn't have the buy-in from me because I didn't think they cared about me. And so I kind of want my legacy to be is I made a difference for athletes uh, like myself, you know, ones who were never natural, never the best, but who would do anything to get better. And ones who are told they were not good enough. Like, I'm not saying I have all the answers, but I'm going to do everything I can for that person. So. Boom. Sorry about that cutoff there. Like we mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, we had some technical difficulties with Clayton at the end of the podcast. Very last question, but it's a good little cliffhanger. I, I promise these two will be back on the podcast for years to come. So you'll get to hear Clayton's story and him answering that final question. So going to lead you with a little suspense on that question, but I do appreciate you listening. I do appreciate you making it this far and supporting our podcast. Keep chopping wood. 
Thank you for listening. Join us next week as we dive down another rabbit hole. If you enjoyed the show, don't forget to like, subscribe, and leave a five-star rating. Follow us on Instagram at Austin Yoakum to stay updated on future podcast guests. Keep chopping wood.